we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and Aboriginal Elders emerging. Welcome to the Vale Podcast, in bed with Robin Vale Appliances and Furniture Zone. New name, same people, more stuff. My love of dirt bikes and racing is something I tend to keep to myself for the most part. It's always been there, although I was never allowed to have a dirt bike as a kid. We had a farm quad bike, and that was probably for good reason. Dad still says that I only know two speeds, flat out and stop. And he's right, so good choice. However, I had friends I'd go and stay with who taught me to ride, and I loved it from the first time I let go of that clutch. Those teenage weekends were some of the best, and the reason why to this day, I still want a green motorcycle, and those that knew me when I was a teenager can probably put those pieces together. During adulthood though, I buried it, all of it. My love of dirt bikes, the bush, motorsport, and all those other sports that earned me the title of bogan or tomboy or whatever, when I was living and working in mainstream media in the city and overseas. Now that I'm back out in the country, however, where I belong, I have a couple of boys of my own who love bikes, a husband who just lets me be me, thankfully, and I could care less about what people think. It's come back in a big way, and that's thanks in part to this bloke that I got to have a chat with at the Euston Pub on Easter Saturday. Toby Price, OAM. He's not only brought the sport of off-road and desert racing into the mainstream with his ability to just do incredible things on a motorcycle as well as win every race he enters, but the fact that he's 6'2", incredibly handsome and humble, making him very, very marketable, along with his willingness to sit down and chat to anyone about it. From kids who idolise him, international motorsport journos, to this small town podcast host who was just over the moon to be given an opportunity like this makes him incredibly popular. People all over the world love him and he's inspired kids of all ages, including this big kid, to discover and rediscover their happy place on a motorcycle. We have a lot to thank Toby Price for and I could not be more thankful to him for meeting me at the Euston Pub for a chat and for Mitch, of course, for letting us in before an event on mental health on Easter Saturday for Western Landcare, the Euston Regional Landcare Group, Far West New South Wales Health District and the Regional Adversity Mental Health Program. This is my pub chat with Toby Price, OAM. It's Toby Price Day. That's what the 3rd of April is now known as. Welcome. Toby Price. Thank you. Yeah. OAM. Oh, yeah. How O-A-M. does that feel? It's uh, To me, it's actually quite strange. Um, honestly, at the start, I didn't even really know what the award was. I got the email in my inbox and I just thought it was some like bit of a junk mail <laughs> type thing. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, kind of just fobbed it off a bit to the side, and then next thing, yeah, all my uh, my management group got in contact with me and said that yeah, you're going to receive the award. So um, yeah, then that's uh, I started doing a bit of research, and quite crazy to receive that. It's so. massively crazy. Like yeah. it's it all it's <laughs> it's almost part of royalty. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, exactly. Mm. So. Um, yeah, I felt quite bad at the start when I was just fobbing <laughs> off to the side a little bit. But, oh, just um, another award. Yeah. Hall of Fame, Dakar Trophy, just another <laughs> whatever, OAM. Yeah, so uh, no, quite quite pumped to, to receive that. So um, actually I go to a, a, an award ceremony pretty soon uh, coming up and um, yeah, accept the award. So uh, all the, the COVID stuff has kind of hindered that a little bit at the moment. But um, yeah, to be racing a motorcycle and receive an award such as something like that, it's... Uh, uh, it, it's quite um, 
quite amazing to add to the collection. Well, yeah, but when you think about it, you've won Dakar twice. You did it on your second attempt. You're the only Australian to ever do it. You've lifted the profile of enduro racing and off-road racing through the roof. Like, you're a bit of a – I don't want to blow too much smoke up your ass, but you're a bit of a rock star. (laughs) Yeah, look, yeah, a lot of people looking at me from the outside in, it definitely – it's quite a a cool thing to to see. But for me, at the end of the day, I I kind of – I grew up in a small town – um, country town and mm. basically a, a population of a thousand people and to um, yeah I, I, the goal was always to be a motorcycle racer and um, yeah to get through that and come from such a small background of uh, racing and then to be on the world stage now and bring that recognition of of enduro racing yeah for sure I've done quite a lot but uh, I still feel like I was the same kid at yes yeah, six seven eight years old and racing around out in the uh, outback and uh, on the farm. That's probably why you've got that nice guy reputation. Yep. Because you're still the humble country kid from Roto, New South Wales, that is just racing a motorcycle and going really fast. Yeah, that's it. It's that's all it really is to me. Really, is is racing a motorcycle and trying to go extremely fast. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes uh, some people uh, blow it out of proportion a little bit, but um, yeah, it's cool. The, the following and and the support that I get from uh, around Australia and, and now around the world. It's um, yeah, definitely. When you sit back and, and look at it, it definitely blows you away a little bit. So, mm. uh, but yeah, you, you can't take it all for granted. You can all uh, change at the blink of an eyelid and. Um, yeah, we've just got to keep trying to try and stay on two wheels, um, which seems to be a little bit of a struggle the last couple of years. But uh, when you're, you're riding a motorcycle like we are in, in remote locations and in, uh, in, in these deserts, uh, it definitely can bring you unstuck pretty quickly because there's no pre-running like uh, like normal events we normally get to do. So it's you're going in every day, single every single day blind pretty much. Mm. So it's uh, it's quite a crazy race and experience to be a part of, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just something about it that just keeps drawing me back for more. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Hey, look, if you can do it and you can win it twice, then why wouldn't you keep going back? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But let's go back to your childhood first. You grew up in Roto in New South Wales. Yep. Population of 1,000 people. Yep. And you jumped on a bike at what age? Uh, I jumped on a bike at about two and a half, nearly three years of age. Could you reach the ground? Uh, no, Dad had to run run along behind me and hold the mud guard, and then once I got my balance and got going, um, let me go, and then off I went for the day. Then, so I'd only pretty much uh, come to a stop when I ran out of fuel, and um, bike laid out in the paddock, and I'd walk back home and say, "Dad, the bike's run out of fuel. Let's uh, go get some more fuel in the bike." Dad will come out and top the thing back up, do the same thing again, balance me along a little bit, and then off I'd go again. So it's. Uh, was pretty much just non-stop riding on the farm, really. So I, I grew up on 43,000 acres, so um, had plenty of playground to go and ride yeah. and enjoy and, and take in the scenery. What were you growing on 43,000 acres? Uh, we had wheat, uh, loosened sheep and cattle. So yeah, right. um, I'd help Dad muster the sheep and cattle, but I think I was more of a hindrance and a pain <laughs> in the backside than anything. So um, Dad would just get them all into a bit of a herd and get going, and then I'd come ripping through somewhere, and they'd all just spread and take off. So... Uh, yeah, I, I think I probably made the job probably about another two, three hours longer than it needed to be. But um, all I wanted to do was find jumps and um, cruise around and feel like I was helping on the farm for the day. Yeah. And do you enjoy still getting back to a farm and doing that kind of stuff or do you not get a chance anymore? Uh, lately, in the, probably in the past 
eight, nine years, yeah, I haven't really had much of a, a chance to get back out to a farm and, um, and do things like that. So the travelling schedule, um, yeah, is usually quite hectic and, and crazy. I'm usually only home for a week, maybe two weeks, and that's to wash gear and wash clothes and repack and then do a little bit of training, a bit of riding and, um, on some private property up in, in Queensland now where I live and, uh, and then, yeah, back on a plane and off overseas again. So, yeah, I don't make it back out to where I grew up in, in Roto and anything. Um, I haven't been out that way for probably, yeah, 15, 16 years, I would say. So, wow. Yeah, it's a little little crazy, but um, once it starts to slow down, um, I, I would say probably in the next five to eight years, uh, we, we might be able to make our way back out that way. The word slow down is probably not something people expect to hear come out of your mouth. No, definitely not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's still full steam ahead right now and, uh, and full gas. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm only getting older, really. So, um, yeah, eventually one day it's going to slowly come to a halt. And, um, yeah, that's what I mean by slowly come to a halt because mm. I'm going to be trying to be full gas until mm. that day comes, really. But, uh, yeah, 33 and... Um, yeah, turning 34 this year, I'll uh, hopefully then get, like yeah, like I say, another five to eight years out of myself and um, that'll take me through till I'm about 40 and then, uh, yeah, that's, that's about the, the lifespan of a motorcycle rider, so we'll wait and see. Wow. If, if we get that far, I guess, yeah. and to get that far is probably a privilege. Yeah. And we'll get to that later in, during the, um, the event that you're here to do. But going back to mum and dad, have, have they got nerves of steel? Oh, I think so for sure. They've um, I've probably knocked a knocked a couple of years off their life with uh, some stress and some nerves. I think so. Um, yeah, like uh, yeah, my parents have been really good, supportive the whole way through, pretty much. So um, they've never never forced me to go back out and ride again, or never told me to stop. And um, and that that's enough. And uh, they're over over the hospital bills and injuries <laughs> and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, look, they've been really good from, from day dot, really. Mm. And uh, actually, yeah, my mum and dad are, are up in Queensland with me now. And um, dad actually works around in the shop for me and stuff. So I uh, got him on the books doing all my uh, little uh, jobs and that just to try and lift my load a little <laughs> bit easier on uh, changing tyres and air filters and things like that. So then I can go out and do some more uh, more riding and training and practice. So it's uh, definitely um, good to have them back a part of the racing full-time mm. again now. I heard once in an interview that I listened to with you that your dad growing up said to you, if you can't fix it, you can't ride it. Good philosophy? Yeah, good philosophy, that's for sure. Um, honestly, I think they, uh, the result from Dakar this year, if I, if I can't fix mm. it myself, I, uh, <laughs> I can't ride it. So um, I had to fix it myself and in that, in that situation. So, uh, yeah, I, I've seen uh, photos and stuff that mum and dad have got that I'm out in the shed with, with two broken arms working on my bike, trying to um, get the bike ready for another event and help out where I could. And, um, yeah, it's it. It's it's basically kind of a little bit of tough love, really. But mm. um, yeah, yeah, you had to help out wherever you could, and especially where we were growing up, mum and dad had to drive anywhere from five to eight hours each time we were going to go to events and racing. And coming home on a Sunday um, late at night, and we're getting home at two, three o'clock in the morning, and then dad's at work the next morning at six o'clock. So yeah. uh, he'd only get two hours worth of sleep and then straight back to work. So it was, yeah, it was my part that if, yeah, I didn't fix some things, then, uh, yeah, you can't ride the, th yeah. ride the bike. So, Do you reckon that tough love has played a part in how resilient you are? Because clearly you're pretty resilient. You've broken how many bones? 
Uh, yeah, pretty resilient. I've broken 30 bones now, so I'm actually sitting here with a, a busted collarbone. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it, that bit of tough love, I think, has definitely uh, made me the person that I am because, yeah, I, I don't like to give up. I don't like to quit. And, um, yeah, when, when times are tough, you uh, yeah, you just need to grit your teeth and, and, and dig in a little bit deeper and, and try harder. So, it's uh, yeah, it's... Um, Look, I, I definitely don't recommend it to other people <laughs> and other uh, families and their, and their children. But, um, yeah, it's just the the way it is. I, for me, like I say, I, I see it's, it's only a short window. We get to prove ourselves in this racing. And, um, yeah, you've got to try and make every moment count. How far away was the nearest hospital from Roto? Uh, we were about 60 kilometres from the nearest, okay. um, nearest hospital, which... In saying a hospital, uh, I think it was about a hospital of about eight beds, so yep. it was not massive, um, yep. not a very big place. So then the 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 closest places for like surgeries, like big surgeries, was uh, Griffith. So wow, that's a long way away. That's a fair way away. So yeah. that was about 160 kilometres yeah. um, total from the farm. So if yeah something went wrong on the farm, um, yeah, you, you had about two to two and a half hours worth of mm. uh, pain and suffering to to go through before mm. you got to actually like a pretty do, good decent help. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's why I'm able to put up with a bit of pain um, so much as well. I think <laughs> sitting in the car, <laughs> driving the over car. rough. Right? Roads with broken bones. Yeah, that's it. There was no tarmac roads out there, no. so it was um, all corrugation, um, yeah, cattle grids, and, yeah, if you, oh. you didn't gr- grit your oh. teeth, uh, yeah, you're in the back howling, howling oh. and screaming. So, no, it's uh, it's been good, that's yeah. for sure. You just do what you do, I suppose. Mum and Dad just did what they had to do and... Yeah, exactly. That's on the farm. You had to, you had to pretty much be a bit of a MacGyver and a bush mechanic, really. <laughs> so um, yeah, there was no shop just down the road to go and buy spare parts mm. or or do anything like that. So you had to kind of use your brain a little bit to to just yeah come up with a, a system that would actually get the machinery and motorcycles and all that stuff uh, mm. still working on the farm. So. That's where I think, yeah, this year the, the bush mechanic skills came into play for me a little bit. <laughs> Have the T-shirts sold well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've gone extremely well. So, um, yeah, I nearly need to start looking at look at making my own line of zip ties and race tape, really. So, it's, uh, and it's still to this day, I still get tagged in so many things all around the world of people just uh, dodgy and fixes up. So, it's quite scary, actually, because I'm waiting for um, someone to go, hey, well, you did it. Why didn't yeah. it work for me? So, but it's um, it's cool. It's cool to see something like just something so so at the time it was quite complicated, but something simple like that yeah. take off and, and boom, really. Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, it's been been quite funny it's, to see some stories. Yeah, well, it was quite funny to see it come up, like in reports and on Facebook. And you're like, what? How did you get that gash in the tyre, though? Uh, honestly, I don't quite know. Like, I, I caught something in the ground that I remember like a one hard hit and a bit of a thud and um, didn't really think anything of it. I just thought it might have been, been a square edge, like a uh, little hole or something. Mm. And, um, yeah, when I pulled up for fuel, then I just saw this massive big gash and big cut in the tyre. And, um, yeah, it was, wasn't the greatest day to be getting that because that was uh, a marathon stage. We had to use basically the bike as it was uh, for another com- whole complete day of stages and riding. So... At that point, yeah, I, I kind of thought my race was done a little bit, but uh, yeah, the, um, the the saviour of zip ties and race <laughs> tape came into play. <laughs> and work they did until you had a crash. How's yeah. the shoulder now? Yeah, look, 
honestly, the the shoulder is probably a little bit more complicated than uh, at first thought. Um, yeah, we, we crashed the day after and uh, kind of brought me unsucked very quickly. So, um, yeah, I, I, I ended up breaking my clavicle, so which is the end of the collarbone off from the AC joint, and um, yeah, destroyed the AC joint and everything oh. as well. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm able to talk about my own issues and breaks and problems, but uh, as soon as someone yeah pulls out they've just they nicked themselves with a little knife or something and got a, a one centimeter scar i'm like like uh, nah, get really yeah you yeah, don't yeah. like blood yeah oh I, I don't mind blood but just <laughs> when it's somebody else like it just <laughs> seems strange and weird so i'm like oh if it's if it's pouring out of me i'm like ah it's all good so it's, it'll 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 heal up eventually it'll be right so oh. <laughs> but yeah it's um quite strange but yeah i've had i've had to had three surgeries on this shoulder now and um yeah try and get it fixed up so the, the first one didn't quite go to plan um we had a plate on top of the collarbone to um basically just strengthen the collarbone up because it was quite weak and uh, that actually ended up breaking the um the false like fake ligament that's in my shoulder and um yeah cut that so i i went to bed tuesday night woke up wednesday morning and then all of a sudden uh, the shoulder's pointing back in the air again didn't look quite right so uh yeah i went in Thursday afternoon to have a check up and see what's happened and uh, the, yeah the x-rays showed that it was all pretty much falling apart but the only <laughs> way we'd know what was going on was having to have another surgery and cut it open and um, yeah we end up finding out yeah that the, the plate on the top of the collarbone um, just kind of like had soared through the, the ligament and um, yeah just You didn't fell away. feel that? Oh, I was asleep, so I was just, <laughs> I, I, I learned to sleep quite well because when you're in Dakar, you don't get much sleep. So uh, I'd nearly sleep through an earthquake if it was. Uh, yeah, but that's you. That's a ligament in your inside your body being yeah. cut through by a titanium plate. Yep. Didn't yeah. wake you up. Didn't wake me up. No. So. Mozzies don't bother you then no, at all. Don't bother me. No, I don't think <laughs> the mozzies on. like my blood. So it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's um quite quite crazy. That's for sure. But mm. uh, yeah, we we um. Yeah, all back on track with it now, and I've got. Uh, so while I've been out, I went and had another surgery and uh, got my carpal tunnels done in both my wrists. So mm. uh, for probably the last year, two years, um, it's just gradually been getting worse. It just I, I wake up in the morning and like all my hands are numb and stuff. Yep. So yeah, got those fixed in the meantime. So while I'm busted and broken now, may as well uh, go in for a full service okay. and repair <laughs> and uh, yeah, go and get an oil change yeah. and we're done, good to go. Can't fix a shoulder with zip ties and tape though can you no nah, i probably should have tried it on the first <laughs> attempt that might have held it together oh. then so but uh no nah, we have to we'll, we'll do that the medical way i think yeah happy days so it's um yeah all on the right track yeah on the right road. push doctors probably not a, an ideal career path no nah, that's that's pretty much why i got out of saudi arabia because <laughs> it was kind of like a little bit like push doctors mm. so um yeah i wasn't uh i didn't plan on being awake to try and fix myself in that one either so <laughs> no. I'd, I'd rather be asleep for that but that's another thing so the dakar this year moved from south america to saudi arabia uh actually this is a second year moved across yeah so we uh, last year was our first time in saudi arabia mm. and this was the, the second year there so we saudi arabia's got a five-year contract um, okay. with, with the with Dakar with the event so we've got another three um, years there at least and then uh, I've heard rumors that they're looking to extend the the contract to to another five um, so then we'll if that goes ahead then it'll look like it'll be about an eight-year uh, plan that will be there so how different is it how different's the terrain from you know you've got landscapes like Bolivia which is like another planet yep to the sand dunes of Saudi Arabia like is it 
do you have to reconfigure the bike? Does the weight because the rally bike's quite different to the normal dirt bike, isn't it? With you got three three fuel tanks. Yeah, there's three fuel tanks. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So the the rally bike is. Um, almost basically double weight of a normal motocross bike. So we, we probably sit around 175 kilos um, Jeepers. just in the bike. So, and yeah. what do you weigh in at, Don't, yeah. without being rude? Because you're not a little bloke. No, I'm a little bloke. I'm, I'm 100 kilos. So, she um, is. Yeah, well, it's, it's nearly 300 kilos. Yeah, so basically nearly 300 kilos worth of weight. Um, pulling through sand. Pulling through sand. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's tough going, that's for sure. And uh, the, the, the biggest change really... To Saudi Arabia is yeah, it's majority of it's all backed off sand really. So uh, with it being in South America, it was quite a, a vast variety of uh, of different terrains. So you'd have a couple of days of a good hard pack um, roads, and then you'd go into rocky, stony riverbeds. Then you'd be on the the salt flats in mm. in, uh, in in Bolivia and. Um, yeah, there was plenty of different things, and then the altitude changes and stuff there in, in South America was quite difficult. So, when you're at it four and a half, five thousand meters, mm. um, uh, that sixty horsepower motorcycle you got pretty much drops to around about fifty, probably, wow. yeah, fifty-five horsepower. So it's what about your body? Because at that altitude, you've got to do. I suppose that's where the Red Bull R and D and stuff comes in for altitude training. Like the Red Bull team are top of their game in just about everything yeah exactly so we'd um we'd have all these machines and we'd sleep like in some of the um like the chambers mm. and, and things everything that red bull's got set up and um even yeah just when we we're doing like road books we basically would have be connected to machines and stuff and try and get like good amounts of oxygen and then um and then just trying to train the body to to kind of like starve of oxygen really so yeah, it was right. um yeah, you, you really function so much different when you're at 5,000 metres. It's just everything just feels like it goes into slow motion and um, and you go and try and climb 20 stairs, you'd get to the top and you feel like you're out of breath and yeah. it's just a uh, completely different world. So to lose that, um, I, I did extremely well in altitude. So uh, a lot of people feel like got headaches and started to get sick and, and things like that. So it was kind of that... Uh, situation was like in my advantage and so we've we've lost that but um yeah look Saudi Arabia offers so much more as well at uh, some of the areas we, we ride through there now it just it honestly felt like yeah we uh we jumped on the on the NASA program was on on <laughs> on Mars and stuff it was uh just crazy some of the landscape just like bright red like dirt and mm. massive huge boulders and um, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy and spectacular to be a part of it. Mm. You mentioned your road books. Let's yep. talk about that because that just – this is how you navigate the whole rally. Yep. From little arrows going this way and that, and, and you've got a colour-coded system. Run us through it because it just blows my mind. Yeah, look, it's to, – to sit here and chat on it, um, it's definitely a hard thing to try and take in and understand. But um, when we get our road books, we now get them – uh, basically pre-coloured for us now, oh. um, so they come. They get given to us at uh, 15 minutes before the stage starts. So what? Yeah. So you you've got no idea where you're going for the day. So it's um you just what? Yeah. How is that even possible? It, it, tell me about it. We 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 all struggled to to drive around the streets with a tom tom and um, <laughs> we're yelling and swearing at that thing because it's told us the wrong direction and stuff to go. And here we are 
getting a piece of paper that's rolled up like yeah. anywhere from uh, it just depends on the size of the day it can be uh, a, a very small road book for 300 kilometers for the day or you get 1100 kilometers and then you've got to find the halfway point of the road book and cut it in half and put the first half in the actual like tower on the motorcycle yep. and then put the second half in your pocket because the road book's so big it won't fit the whole thing in there so and you've got 15 minutes to do all that and you've got 15 minutes to do all that so you're uh yeah you ride to the start of the stage and um all calm cool calm and collected and then uh it just goes into a like massive big panic and um <laughs> then yeah you take off and basically it's broke up into basically three columns and then there's like each like section we can we can find like three notes um will fit in our screen so it'll basically just say at 0.0, which will be the start. Um, it'll just sort of show you're on like a hard-packed piece on a road. So that's basically a solid, um, a solid line, and you'll take off. And then the the next like note could say at 2.0 kilometres. Um, you will have a, a T junction. You've got to turn right. So still a solid line. It'll then just have a, a T junction with an arrow pointing off to the right-hand side. Once you get there, then you make that call. The The third box across, it can give you like cap headings. So for some reason, they might have just said it's cap 200 um, degrees. So that's like your north, south, east, west. Um, zero degrees, 360 is north um, and 180 south. And basically you you make that turn and then, then if it's showing the, the right cap heading, um, you, you're good to go. So where the road book kind of sits on the top, part of the left hand side of the of the tower there's a uh, an instrument there that gives us our kilometers in distance mm. and then the right hand side is our cap heading so i try and keep my stuff like in line in level so all my kilometers are always going to be on the left hand side so I, I set that side up for the on the left hand side and then cap headings are always on the right hand side box so they're there so you can just kind of cross ref reference and get everything in place so then uh, after that, it might tell you in one in one kilometer. Um, so at three kilometers, it'll show a solid line and then a dotted line off to the right hand side. So then that'll tell you a dotted line means it's off piste. So mm. there's no track, there's no road, there's no nothing. So once you hit that that kilometer marking at three kilometers, you then just need to turn right and then follow the cap, and it could be. Say it was if, if it was 200 degrees off that first road, it could be 250 degrees, and then you will then just take off uh, off the road and just till you get to 250 degrees on your screen at the top right hand side, and then once you've got that, you kind of basically just reference something out in the distance and then start just heading towards that, and then uh, make your own way. So it's um, the yeah. mind boggles though. Look, yeah. Running through all that, I'm keeping up, and then. You say, uh, just look at something in the distance and what happens if you're 500 metres wrong with your navigation, that can bring you completely unstuck? Yep. Literally 100 metres can bring you completely unstuck. So it's, um, if, yeah, you don't turn within on that point in that right spot or you've just somehow mistakenly missed that road, like that note, um, then, like I say, that's if you've made that mistake and say I was meant to turn off at three kilometres and do this cap 250 and for some reason I've missed it and gone 200 metres further up the track and gone, damn, I was meant to turn back there. So I'd turn around and then I'd come back to that point 200 metres. Mm. But then that puts my kilometres out on the on the top left-hand side. Yeah. So on the left-hand side of the handlebars is a like a cluster of buttons. 
So at the bottom of that, there's a toggle switch that which then rolls the roadbook through. So if you push forward on it, the road roadbook will bring the notes through. If you go too far, you pull it back and then it will roll back through. So then there's like two buttons on the left-hand side, uh, one at the top, one at the bottom. And each time you press either one, it's uh, either adding 100 kilometres or take, subtracting 100 kilometres. So once I get to that point and I've made that mistake, then I'll turn around, come back that 200 metres. Then I have to hit the button at the bottom four times to then recalibrate my kilometres and distance back oh to three kilometres to then turn off and go the right direction. So there's so much stuff going on in the top of your head um, while you're trying to ride a motorcycle at 140, 50, 60 kilometres an hour Yeah. Um, that, yeah, can just it can bring you unstuck so quickly. And that's like, yeah, you can see the results that will just jump and, and starting first is like nine times out of ten is a massive disadvantage because if you make a good track and good way, and being that you're in sand, you can pretty much start to see a pretty predominant line. Yeah. So that's where you see the, the role reversal of the days of just one day you're at, in first, and the next day you're in 20th. Yeah. Next day you're in first, next day you're in 20th. Yeah. So it just keeps jumping backwards and forwards because then the guys behind you then are basically just following your line and mm. just swinging off it and going full gas. Mm. And you're trying to take your time but still go f- quite quick that you don't lose as much time but yeah you're pretty much nearly guaranteed to lose time unless yeah somebody else has blown through and then they've all thought that you had to keep going that way and the guys behind you have made a mistake but it's usually quite uncommon in the sand yeah right yeah so as well as dragging 300 kilos through sand your head is full of all this and you're at 120% concentration yep. for 14 days. Yep, yep. How do you get yourself, because you put your body through a fair bit, yep. how do you get your head, though, around that? How do you – do you train for that? Do you – what do you do? Yeah, so, like, training-wise, um, you can't really replicate the actual event, like, two, three months out because – once you put yourself through that, like after Dakar is finished, you normally take anywhere from four to eight weeks to kind of really recover, depending on how demanding the whole mm. race has been or if you've had issues and stuff like that. It can my, – my very first one, I re- remember it probably took me, yeah, two months to kind of feel like I got recharged and back. Because you're only – your first Dakar, you're only a water boy and yep. you still made – you finished third. Third, First yep. attempt yeah, as a water boy. As a water boy. So uh, the, the water boy, like – kind of name is uh, around with the factory teams that if yeah the the factory teams were having issues or they needed a part off my motorcycle then basically I've sacrificed mm. my race and and help them to then like come through and get to the point where I'm at now with uh, being in the top team so we we kind of have a few water boys that are helping us and getting through the event and stuff now but yeah you kind of got to do your trade I guess mm. a, a little bit to to get into that spot and um yeah, honestly, like that first year, just it all um, – don't put it all down to luck, but I just had a lot of things kind of go the right way that uh, I wasn't really called on by any of the, the two top front runners with the, the KTM side. And um, it was a four-man team, and the the two other guys basically had, had blown an engine because we went through the salt flats like when it was pouring rain, and they took in a lot of water and um, – yeah, the engines basically just destructed, and they were they were actually behind me um, mm. on those stages. So 
I didn't come across them um, stuck on the side of the track. Otherwise, yeah, if I did, I would have had to have stopped and tried to aid assistance. But nine times out of ten with that, they would have just said, oh, the bike's, the bike's finished, there's nothing we can fix or take from yours to um, get them going again. So then I basically was just kind of chasing um, Mark Comer and, uh, in that first year. And, yeah, it all just kind of yeah fell into place that it just uh, I didn't have to aid him and help him in any way and uh, he won in 2015 and then uh, yeah I finished third for my first attempt so um, yeah I was just kind of like a blow-in ring-in and um, yeah next thing all of a sudden we we had a, a podium spot yeah. so it was uh, quite a cool story and then that's when I signed the the, the contract with KTM to um, yeah be on the factory team the next year and then between that time um mark Comer had retired so basically i got his seat on the on the bike um and then when yeah you're sitting at the the start line or sitting with the team in the tent it, yeah i was very new to the race and still quite uh, green to it all really mm-hmm. and uh, i had the lowest number in on the on the bike sitting under the the factory <laughs> team tent so i was like this is a fair bit of pressure right now but yeah 16 just um all went extremely well and um we pushed hard when we needed to and 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 we made a really good race and ended up i think ended up winning by about 43 minutes or something so um yeah it was uh quite a bit of a fast track to the top step yeah i don't think you can call it luck either you said you were lucky that's not luck no that's that's incredible skill riding smart being smart with navigate, like all of that, st- none of that's luck. No, nah, nah, that's it. Like it. It's definitely not luck, but you you still need a little bit on your side. That yeah, I I, I made all the right calls. I I did really really well in the um in the navigation. So everything just kind of yeah kind of fell into place a little bit for us and didn't make any big mistakes that were costly. And um, yeah, it's yeah definitely not luck, mm. but uh, there's still yeah so a fraction of it in there that's that, that just counted on as well. So it's yeah it's it's been a, a a good few years of racing, and then um but yeah there's also been a lot of struggles mm. the whole time as well. Mm. And we will talk about that later today. Today I wanted to sit down and have a, a podcast chat to you with a woman. How many times have you been interviewed for a podcast by a, a lady? Uh, I think this would probably be the second or third time. Excellent. Maybe yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't mind being. I wouldn't. Have, I'm in the top three. Yeah. <laughs> You've made I've the podium. Got a, <laughs> go on. You're um, on the podium, so it's good. <laughs> that's good enough for me. Let's bring it back local. I, yeah, I could sit here and talk to you about Dakar all day because it's you know you watch document. It's just mind blowing to go and do it, let alone to win it a couple of times. Yeah. Let's talk about Hatter, which is just up the road for us. That's our local yep. des- desert race, which you've won six times. Yep. Any yeah. chance you'd after you retire come back and do it again? Oh, for sure. It's um, the way my schedule works now. Um, KDM Europe pretty much make all my calls on the events and races I can do. Um, and when the world is in a normal situation, mm. um, they normally have me overseas for pretty much eighty percent of the year. So. Yep. Uh, yeah, each year it just doesn't quite fall into place that uh, I can come back and do the event, and um, we've normally got an event on around the same time. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not too sure on this year with it, but yeah, with my shoulder the way it is, um, for sure it's not on the cards for this year. But uh, look, yeah, it's it's been one of them events that uh, has got me to this point and, and spot where I'm at now. So it's uh, one of them events I really enjoyed doing. Trust, it's four hours of just 
slogging yourself to mm-hmm. pretty much to death out there, um, I think definitely put me in a, a good mindset and a good spot and a place for, for Dakar racing because it's um, – Dakar, you're able to kind of push for a f- – couple of hours and then kind of just get into a good flow and good rhythm for a little bit and then you have to push a little bit more towards the end but yeah Hatta was um from when that quad bike rode across in front of you you were pinned until you saw the checkered flag yeah, yeah. so um yeah you're pretty much uh, running at peak for four hours and it's hard work isn't it because you oh, are yeah. at peak for hard like as far as your body and your heart rate goes it's four hours and that's why they call it enduro racing yep but yep no exactly that's you you'd run anywhere from if you were getting under 170 beats per minute, like on it for an average, um, <coughs> there you you'd be doing quite well. So you, well, you'd be doing quite well. You're extremely fit. So mm. anywhere around there, you're above 170 average heart rate for the whole four hours, and um, yeah, that's it's quite straining yeah. and strenuous on the body. So uh, you you finish that one, and you know you've done a, mm. a hard four hours of work. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people have. If someone hasn't ridden a motorcycle before or a dirt bike, they don't understand, you know, they're, oh, he's just riding a dirt bike. It's hard work. Even just riding around the blocks yep. and being silly is hard. It's a good workout. It is indeed. That's uh, a lot of people just say, oh, it can't be that bad. You're just, you're sitting on the on the bike and you turn the throttle and you just sit there and hang on. Yeah, but right? you're not sitting there but for the most part. There. It's no. like, yeah, it's like somebody that go say, go out and go into your house in the kitchen and stand up and down uh, 300 times <laughs> off your kitchen seat yeah. and then tell us how your legs feel. Yeah. Um, it, might only, it might take them 20 minutes to do it, mm. but you've got to do that for four hours. Mm. Like it's um, each lap, yeah, you stand up and down probably anywhere from three, 400 times mm. or maybe even more. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's hard work from pretty much, yeah, the – well – from the head down really so mm. your, your mind you've got to be quick thinking um yep shoulders and all your arms are taking a beating and the arm pump like some point does kick in and uh your lower back cops are f- flogging mm. um your, your legs are just on fire so it just yeah from head to toe you're you're uh, you're in pain the whole time nearly if people watch your videos or watch you race and they see how easy you make it look because yeah. you do make it look easy just with that, is that rhythm or the way you hold your weight on the bike to be able to just glide over the, the lumps and bumps and the – is that something that you've had to work on, like use it? Because it just looks like you make it look so easy. Yeah, that's – a lot of people comment on that, that uh, they, they watch me at Hadar or watch me at Fink and, um, and, and even watch me at Dakar that – my riding style is definitely a lot different to a majority of people. Mm. Um, I do tend to see a little bit more than, than what most would. But, um, yeah, we, I guess with just yeah, my body weight, I've been able to, to kind of perfect a way that uh, that works for me. That, yep. Yeah, I can use my body weight to keep the bike quite settled, but then um, use some of the bumps and stuff of, to the advantage of like trying to stand up and, and things like that. So there's, there are some bumps that, yeah, you can use that just, that will put you, throw you up to your feet. And then instead of just trying to pull yourself up on, on the, into a standing position on the motorcycle again. So, um, yeah, you, I do watch some of the videos and 
trust me, it's definitely not easy and it's uh, I definitely don't feel like I make it look easy. <laughs> it, it is a lot of hard work, but then, yeah, you do watch some clips and it just it does feel like it just flows and yeah. and it's quite smooth. So um, looks elegant and but, graceful. Are they adjectives that you've uh, been described? I've never been described as elegant <laughs> and graceful, um, sitting here with a mullet and uh, everything like that. But, um, yeah, the, the riding style, I guess, it's once I put the helmet on, it's, um, yeah, I'm able to, to, to make it work. But that's, like I say, I've been been riding since two and a half, three years mm. of age, and it's pretty much the only thing I really know and, and understand uh, uh, to do well. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 been a good a good road for for sure. Mm. Let's talk about Fink. Lastly, whose idea is it? Is it your? Do you go to Red Bull and KTM and go? I've got this idea. I reckon I can win this race in a trophy truck and the bike. Can can you do that? Can we do that? Yep. Is it yours or is it? Do, do KTM come to you and Red Bull come to you and go? Hey, Toby's crazy enough to try this, <laughs> and you go, yeah, okay, challenge accepted. Yeah. How does that even come up? Um, no, that that was all an idea from me, um, and yeah, pretty much. Of course, it was. Everyone just looked at me and just shook their head and said, "It's not possible." Um, so, yeah, I, I sometimes wish I I listened a little bit more in school because um, then I had to kind of go, "Well, it is possible," because I had to sit down and just like tally up times and work out like corrected times of what time I'd need to be out of the truck and um, what time I'd have to be down in to think by the time I'd have to then catch a plane to come back to the start line and then calculate the times how much it would take the, the plane to fly back so there was there was probably to anybody else it was probably about a two three day plan and job like to write all this information mm. down it probably took me two weeks but um <laughs> Yeah, so that was where the school probably would have came into play a little bit better if I, uh, I'd listened instead of looking out the window and dreaming of riding my motorcycle. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we uh, I just, like I say, I, I'd won the event at Fink, um, I think around four, four times at that point and um, never really looked at setting the record for the most wins there. It was... Um, and, and not to say it was like the race was becoming boring or anything, but I, I'd won the event four times. I was quite happy and content with that. And I was just like, I was more so just looking for a new challenge mm. and um, something different and um, just for, for people to just go, this is not going to work. And, and the more the people tell me, no, it's not possible and it can't be done, mm. then it just drives me that little bit more to try and prove them wrong. Mm. So, and there was... Trust me, there was a lot of doubts coming from KDM's side, Red Bull's side, yeah. everyone's side really. Um, but, yeah, I was just determined enough to, to try and see if we could make it work and see if it would um, come to plan in my first year of trying it. Um, we just had a really good, ex extremely good run. Um, we got down on time. Um, truck ran well all the way down. And, um, yeah, I, I flew back and I had about probably 20, bit over 20 minutes um, to basically get organised and sorted to be on the motorcycle and then take off and do it all again for the same day. So, uh, yeah, once we did the one way, um, everyone was like, damn, this is actually <laughs> kind of going to work. Mm. So, and then on the way home, the truck ran well but was only running on seven cylinders. So I it dropped the valve in, uh, in one of the cylinders and done caused a bit of damage but somehow someone was looking over me that day that it just it kept the truck going and uh, we crossed the finish line physically in second overall 
but one trophy truck class, and um, which is class four, and then yeah, there was no celebration there and then on the spot. It was basically climb out at the other end of the of the pit lane, straight across to the car to the airport, and fly back to to the Fink end to then ride the motorcycle back to Alice Springs, and we ended up winning the motorcycle um, side. So. I was one position and about I think seven minutes down um, on both one one, but uh, yeah, since that's been done now, yeah, people have a little bit of confidence in us that it, it can be possible and can be done. But and I know it can be done, but you've just got to have all them stars align and just be in the exact right spot. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll give it another attempt one year for sure. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it won't be this year, but. Uh, Maybe we'll look at towards it next year, and um, we have a new trophy truck coming from uh, from America at the moment for Four Fink, and um, yeah, nobody's from the motorcycle side has put their name on a um, outright trophy of the truck, so that's basically like another bit of a record I can I can grab a hold of and keep, and then maybe the following year we'll try and grab both of them in the same year and and add to the collection again, but uh, yeah, it's trust me, it's a lot of work, that's for sure. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. All of this racing, and yes, it's mo racing, but like I said before, you've got to be extremely fit. Yep. What do you do in your downtime to train for this? Because fitness doesn't come naturally to no, anybody. No, so no. what do you do as far as cardio training and strength and stuff? For me, yeah, it's like a work in the gym. Um, so that's like for all the strength training and everything. And then I really enjoy mountain biking. So oh. I'd normally go for four or five hours mountain biking and, um, yeah, go and do a big day of that. And that's more for like not explosive fitness it's more cardio fitness for like longevity so my racing is all long distance so there's really no event or race that's usually within under an hour um and then now with doing dakar we could be on the motorcycle for anywhere from 10 to 14 hours mm. a day so um yeah all, all my stuff now is just more so not high explosive um, power type fitness. It's just yeah, like more long distance longevity riding yeah. and and um, yeah, spend some time on the motorcycle and haven't been on the bike for probably yeah two three months now. Um, so I'm chomping at the bit to get back on a bike and start riding. But it'll, how do you cope uh, come with soon. that? Oh, I don't. It's yeah. uh, don't don't sleep too well <laughs> when I'm not riding the motorcycle. So it's um, yeah, injuries are the worst part of the sport. But unfortunately, they're um, they're they're, they're part of the sport and you mm. can't get away from them so it's uh if yeah you get through your whole, whole entire career and only broke one or two bones um yeah you've you've done extremely well so uh, most motorcycle riders and that they're usually around that 10 20 um area mm. of broken bones or broken ligaments and and things like that so at the end of the day i'd rather break a bone than do like knee damage or yeah. ligament damage um just, yeah, ligaments just take so much longer to heal and mm. yeah, you're uh, kind of up in the air with that. But a bone, as soon as it breaks and it's back in alignment, it'll hopefully start to, to, to knit and, mm. and go back together in the next yeah, three, four, five weeks. So, yeah, just have to wait and see how it all goes. Mm. How do you keep your head together when you're injured? Because, you know, someone that's that's fit and, you know, on the back of a motorcycle, you take them out of it for a couple of days and you start to go crazy. Yep. If you're out for weeks and months with injuries, how do you keep your head level? Um, or don't just, you? I, yeah, kind of don't. Um, I spend a lot of time in the shed working yep. on the bikes and just still be around the bikes and um, kind of be hands-on and stuff with uh, just mechanical stuff. But, yeah, the, the only thing I really kind of like doing is riding mm. bikes. So mm. it's um, 
to be sitting there changing air filters and doing all things like that. That's that's not the fun part of riding a motorcycle. But mm. uh, yeah, look, I, I, I know it, every now and then it's, it's always good to have a break. So yep. anyone that works normal nine to five job, they do six months of work and they go, oh, geez, one week off would be, would be good. But unfortunately in my case, it's not one week off, it's uh, two, three months off. Mm. So it's, um, yeah, healing up and getting sorted again. But I know the day will come that I'll, I'll throw a leg over mm. the bike. Um, it's definitely a struggle at the, the point in time when it's all happening, but um, a break every now and then is, is not so bad. Mm. And uh, But the worst part is, yeah, you lose that fitness and all that um, strength that you've gained over the last two, three years, and then, bang, the injury happens. And, uh, yeah, you lose your fitness within probably two weeks. Yep. So it's, um, doesn't yeah, take long, it does it? It takes six months to build it and yep. two weeks to lose it. So yep. it's like... It's frustrating, but uh, I've been in that position plenty of times and, um, yeah, kind of know a system that works quite well for us to, to get back to, to full strength and, um, yeah, we'll be ready to get back on a mm. bike pretty damn soon. Have you got a team of people? Do you go and talk to psychologists, sports psychologists? Have you got PTs? Yeah, uh, I've got, like, personal trainers, um, yeah, physios and things like that. But, yeah, I don't really talk to too many like mental coaches or anything mm. like that um at the end of the day it's for me if i'm on a motorcycle that's that's my job i know what i'm doing mm. um there is every now and then it just doesn't fall into place and you you kind of put yourself in a challenging spot but it's uh still we um yeah i i, I just i need to that's when my mind is pretty much the most clear is yeah. when i'm on a motorcycle so yeah. it's um when I'm, I'm riding and enjoying that, then uh, as long as I'm having fun and enjoying it, then usually uh, riding fast does come quite easily. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, we just try and um, yeah have like Red Bull has um, uh, diagnostics training centers and stuff in, in Austria and in, in the US and um, we can go over there and spend one week there. We can spend six months there if we yeah. want. So. They're, they're usually quite good with um, the recovery side of things, but just unfortunately, like I say, with the world we're yeah. in at the moment, I can't just hop on a plane and go over there. So, uh, But I've been through the injuries plenty of times before, so I know what kind of works, what kind of doesn't. Yeah, been been uh, in this situation a fair few times, so <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully um, not many more left. And, um, yeah, just uh, all good times riding on mm. two wheels. Well, with the world being the way it is, we were on knife's edge to see whether you'd actually make it here or not, given yep. that you now live in Queensland. Hey, here's a question. If you're up in New South Wales, you now live in Queensland. State of origin. Blue oh, or maroon? Nah, I'm still blues. Still oh, yeah. blues, yeah. Born in New South Wales. No, we can't, can't be friends. It can't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nah, that's it. Yeah, born in New South Wales, I, I can't trade in. So it's... Um, so yeah, then where do you watch the state of origin in Queensland if you're home? At home, do you? I, yeah, if, if I go to any stadium, I guess in a in a uh, in Queensland with a blue shirt on, I'll probably get shot. Yeah. So it's um, no, it's uh, yeah, one of them things that yeah, I just um, I stick to to the blue side and stay that way. Yeah. Who do you follow in the NRL? Honestly, I'm not much of a big football. Fan. Really? No, the state of origin is about the only game yeah. that I kind of watch. Um, my dad's a big supporter of the Eels. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother's Knights. Yep. Um, but, yeah, for me, it's, it's all engines and It's wheels. just orange. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. orange, yeah. yeah. So yeah. If, it, if it hasn't got a motor or wheels, um, not really too interested. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Here's another question. Two-stroke or four-stroke? Oh, 
Love the sound of a two-stroke. Can never beat that sound of a mm. two-stroke. But or the smell of it. Or the smell. Yeah, mm. you get some good uh, pre-mix in that. It's, <laughs> oh, it, that's that's the best way to wake up in the morning, that's for sure. Um, but racing-wise, yeah, I'd have to choose a four-stroke. It just You can't kind of go past the the torque and, mm. and the and the horsepower them things can get. So, um, yeah, I, I still got, I've got a two-stroke at home and actually I built this thing up and got it all sorted and... Um, yeah, it's too nice for me to even ride, so I've really? never even ridden the thing. So it just, <laughs> it's going to get hung up on the walls shortly because, uh, yeah, it's too damn nice for me. So, But I love the two-stroke stuff. That's, mm. that's where it all started for us. Yeah. Toby, thank you for making the effort to come on. You know, it's been a hell of a lot of effort, especially this week with the Brisbane lockdown and yep. and having to rearrange flights into Griffith and then you to drive from Griffith to here. So And then yep. on to Broken Hill from here, isn't it? Yeah, then on to Broken Hill from here. So, um no, look, it's well, yeah. This lockdown definitely uh, caused a bit of carnage for everybody <laughs> here and organising all this. And um, look, definitely super pumped to be here and uh, be a part of the event. So it's um, yeah, it just definitely caused a lot more stress than what was needed. Uh, but yeah, the the Queensland side opened back up on Thursday and um, yeah, flew into Griffith and yeah, unfortunately couldn't really do any running around there, especially being Friday. It was. Um, Good Friday, so everything was kind mm. of pretty much shut. Mm. So, um, yeah, we, we flew in and had about a four-and-a-half-hour drive to here. So it was um, – yeah, other than that, we're all – Beautiful all drive. Lovely drive. Yeah, yep. gorgeous. C- cannot complain. No, so, of course so not. Those hay planes. <laughs> they are plenty, interesting. Plenty of things out there. So, uh, <laughs> But trust me, I was driving along there going, oh, there'd be a good desert race we could have out here. Like, yeah, yeah why well, isn't there one out there? And, I don't know. You can't really use the land for much else. So I'd think yeah that would be a, a good spot and a good place for it so. maybe that's a retirement project for you that hay plains yep desert challenge or yeah. something. yeah we'll be on so uh you, you never know we'll ah. wait and see awesome thank you so much for coming thank you for sitting down with me at the royal hotel thank you mitchell for yep. opening up the pub so we could have it and we didn't have to cross the river because toby can't go to bloody victoria <laughs> so thank you to everyone involved loving it awesome let's get you down to the footy ground so that um you can entertain the thousands of people that are there to to listen to you sounds like a plan awesome thank you i have to thank everyone involved in bringing Toby to Euston. Getting to sit down and have a chat with him at the pub was certainly a career highlight and I've interviewed a few big names in my former life. I would love to sit down and have a chat to him at the pub over a few beers. Then I think I'd get some real stories out of him. If you were at the event on Easter Saturday, you got twice as long and twice as in-depth as we did in this 45-minute pub chat. But with any luck, I'll be able to chat to him again in the not-too-distant future. I need to personally thank Scott Leslie and Tal O'Shea for their hard work, Olivia for entertaining the kids, Mitch and Kels for the use of the Euston Pub before hours, Beck and Kerry ann for styling the stage, and of course my husband for his humour, never once lecturing me and supporting me to do me on any given day, whatever that might be. If you need a lay down after that episode of The Veil, find a new couch, mattress or bed at Robin Vale Appliances and Furniture Zone.